Well, we are in a series on the Gospel of Luke, and this week we come to a feature of our own uh, worship service and something that has been a feature of Christian devotion and worship for two millennia. That is the Lord's Prayer. And this is Luke's account of the Lord's Prayer, which is virtually the same as Matthew's account, though it does have slightly different nuances, even as it is shorter than uh, Matthew's account. And it, it, when we read it, it will be shorter than what we typically uh, recite in this service and, and other services I'm sure you've been a part of. Now, we're, we're going to be spending three weeks on this passage, believe it or not. The first two weeks dealing with the particulars of the prayer itself, of, of what he teaches we should do. And then the third week, looking at Jesus' wider teaching, teaching in conjunction with the prayer itself, because he teaches this model for prayer, and then he gives illustrations to help understand what he's, he's teaching. So each week, we're going to read the whole passage. It's just 13 verses to get, hopefully in our minds, the fuller extent to what he has in mind when we, we pray our Father. Let's pick it up. Chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, Lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Well, this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to the Christ for it. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do give you this, give thanks for this word that comes through your Son, his important teaching on what it is to address you as our Father. I pray that your Spirit, again, would be amongst us to give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would rest in this word, that we would receive your hospitality and your kindness, and in turn, we would walk in your ways. I pray this in Jesus' name, because he is our Savior and our Messiah, and because he taught us to pray to you. We pray this in his name, through his spirit. Amen. Now, if you'll remember from two weeks ago, all these passages connect. We tend to read them, even in worship services like this, as kind of individual, isolated passages. But there's a complete flow that, that goes back several weeks in, in the study. And if you'll remember from two weeks ago, with the parable of the Good Samaritan, at issue was a lawyer, who was most likely a Pharisee too, testing Jesus. And the root of his testing was his denial, either consciously or unconsciously, that, that God was actually good. He denied that God was actually good and had his people's best interests at heart. 
So why else would a Jewish expert in Scripture, in, in the law, ask such a nonsensical question as, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? You can't do anything to inherit something. Inheritance, are all, they're always given. They're always given. They're not earned. And it's the sort of thing that the children, or really even children that grow into adulthood, who have stern or perhaps abusive or absentee fathers, what they often will wonder, what do I have to do? What do I have to do to get my dad to love me or to even notice me? And the point of, of Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan is to move this lawyer away from a false view of God, and instead he points this lawyer to himself, to himself. Jesus actually is the good Samaritan. He is the one who was a neighbor like nobody else. Even he, he, he perfectly keeps the, the law, love God and love everything you've got and love, love your neighbor as yourself. He's that guy. He is the ultimate neighbor to this Pharisee and he's offering life to him. He offers him atonement and healing and, and the binding of his wounds and the settling of his debts. Jesus offers these things out of his compassion and his love. God is not like a father who, say out of a sense of, of obligation, provides the bare minimum, the superficial for his children, and then brags about being a good father to other people. No, his heart is full of compassion for us, not despite our sin, like say a father who holds his nose while changing his child's diaper. But in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our sin, he knows our frame. He knows that we are dust. That is, that we are cursed by sin and death. He knows our sin better than we do. And still, he wades into the mess to offer us Life. He leans in when everybody else leans away. Well, in the next passage, Jesus encounters Martha, who is a believing disciple who rightly welcomed Jesus into her home, but who was really too distracted with serving Jesus that she mistakenly did not receive his hospitality when it was right in front of her. And though Luke does not tell us, it would appear that in some sense the Pharisee also outright rejected Jesus' offer of hospitality, too, that he was offering in that, that parable. And as we mentioned last week, before we can ever rightly serve God, we must first receive his hospitality, his kindness, as given through his word, like Martha's sister Mary did in that passage. And it's the order of ear, hand, foot, if you will remember. We must first listen to God receiving his word through his son before we can rightly pursue him with our hands and feet. And we must return to that hospitality that he continually offers and not grow tired of that hospitality that he offers. And when we tend to either reject God's hospitality or say we neglect it, sometimes we then choose to try to build his kingdom like Martha was attempting to do, or really far worse, what the Pharisees were trying to do, and we'll do it as we see fit, often in his name. And you can see this across the board in Christianity in America today. 
So in light of this, it makes good sense that the disciples would ask Jesus how to pray, how to go about doing this. Not only is they, they often see him in prayer, like the very beginning of our, our passage indicates, but also because he's the Son of God. And in an even a lighter sense, rabbis often would teach their own disciples how to pray. And that's why they mentioned John the Baptist. John taught, why don't you teach us how to pray? All of that is in view. And considering that, that God viewed the temple not primarily as a house of sacrifice, though obviously sacrifice was fundamental, but as a house of prayer where God's people would commune with him and he would hear them, well, the question of how to pray is actually a very important question. And it's still a regular question among Christians. And if you know anything about Christian publishing over the last 200 years, hundreds of thousands of pages have been written on this one topic alone. So think about it. When you get down to the bare bones, it's a huge deal. When you pray, God hears you. When God tells his people to pray to him, that's the promise. That he hears them. That he hears you. As opposed to the prophets of Baal on top of Mount Carmel, who did everything from chanting to ritually cutting themselves. I mean, digging in with knives on their body in order to get the God they worshipped, Baal, to hear them and respond, our God not only is able to hear us, He invites us to commune with Him in prayer because He wants to hear us. There's the key difference. And prayer, then, is not like writing your wish list to Santa or getting 30 seconds with Him in a mall, and I have that scene in A Christmas Story uh, in my mind there. God is not a vending machine of wish fulfillment who listens to us based on whether we have been naughty or nice. Like with the prodigal son, he invites us to seek him and to commune with him because he delights in us. He's got more than 30 seconds for us. And what Jesus offers then is really a model for prayer. It's, it's really a rubric that touches on every aspect of of life. I was originally intending to do this in one week, and then as I was getting deeper and deeper, I said, no, I need two. And then yesterday morning, I said, there's no way. It's got to be three, because this prayer touches on every aspect of our life and community with other people, our working life, and our, obviously our, our life with God. And while it is perfectly good as a prayer in itself, if you're struggling on how to pray, pray this prayer. Just memorize it and, prayer, and, and pray it. And, and it's why we rightly pray it every single week? Well, it forms the basis of our prayers in general. And each petition as you go through it, each section of that, you can expand upon it and work upon it. That said, prayer is not merely a, how should we say, a perfunctory uh, thing we do. So it can easily become that, kind of like how saying, I love you, can just become empty words at time. Uh, and I will readily admit that, that there are times, actually most times, I tend to pray almost exactly the same thing over and over again, especially when, say, I'm praying for my sons, which I try to pray for them in their presence every single day, or when I, I'm praying before a meal, I tend to pray the same sorts of things, or when I'm asked to pray before a sporting event, I tend to pray the same sorts of things. 
Even so, whether people realize it or not, I am desperately trying not to be innovative. I'm trying to mold my prayers to the Lord's prayer itself, and I use aspects of the prayer for whatever context I am in. I don't want to be innovative. I don't want to try and reinvent the wheel. I want to pray like the master, and I want to get the grooves of this prayer deep into my heart and my soul like a, like a road with just well-worn treads in it. I want that to be in my heart, in my mind, so that when I pray, it just flows out of me. Well, the sections of the Lord's Prayer as we find it here in Luke, really, there's lots of ways you can break it down. I'm going to do it in a fourfold sense, though when you look at the longer version in the Gospel of Matthew, or what we, we prayed uh, just a little while ago, it typically is thought of as an introduction and then three uh, separate uh, petitions. But just for our purposes in walking through Luke, I, I'm going to break it basically into four areas or, or four parts. It's first, how to address God, and in turn, how to think about Him. Then second, how to ask God for our needs and our desires and what that, that means and what that entails. And third, how to ask God for forgiveness uh, with the understanding that we too forgive other people. That's an active thing that we do. And then fourth, how are we to ask God to be with us when we face trials and temptations? And it's not a matter if we face them, it's when we face them that's in view. So this week, I'm just going to touch on the first two things. Not all four, because that'd be a ton. Just the first two things, how to address God and how to ask Him for our needs. Let's just start with that first part. Let's begin with, Father, hallowed be your name. So, in any conversation, the way we address whoever we are speaking to involves names or titles appropriate to the situation and to the relationship and really the context that we find ourselves in. So, for example... You know, the teams I coach, they call, me, they call me Coach Rob, which indicates both a position of authority, I'm the coach, right, but also familiarity. Rob, it's my, my first name. So it's not Coach Fawcett, it's Coach Rob, which makes it authority, but yet a little bit informal at the same time. When I pray before a basketball game, which I've had to do a lot lately, I am typically introduced as the Reverend Dr. Rob Fawcett, which almost always gets looks, especially from the referees who just were speaking to me in the previous game. Like that guy, right? And we do that, I, th I think Kenny Perdue does that because it carries a certain weight of authority, right? That, that saying, calling me Brother Rob or Pastor Rob doesn't quite do. Well, Jesus, the Son of God, teaches his disciples to address the one who made the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them, the Creator God, as Father, as Father. Now, thinking of God as Father, that's not new to Jesus. You can see that in the Old Testament in plenty of places. After all, God refers to Israel as his firstborn son uh, in the book of Exodus, implying that he is Israel's father. And Psalm 68 similarly says that, that God is a father to the fatherless. But in Psalm 89, a messianic psalm, that is a psalm that, that anticipates the coming Messiah and King, David's offspring, who would sit on David's throne forever, God says this about the Messiah. This is God. This is what He says. He says, He, the Messiah, shall cry to me, You are my Father, 
my God and the rock of my salvation, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. As Christians, we believe that this is obviously a description of Jesus, the Son of God, and so Jesus rightly speaks of the God of Genesis 1 as his Father. But if you put Luke's account into conversation with Matthew's account, Jesus doesn't merely say that God is a father, like a father to the fatherless, but he is our father. And what Jesus means is that through him, those who belong to Jesus have the same rights and privileges as he does. They too can call God father like he does and are rightly and actually counted as his sons alongside Jesus. That is a revolutionary statement. It would be like the prince and heir to the throne of whatever kingdom, bringing his friends into the palace and declaring, you are now sons of my father. All of you boys, you're now sons of my father, the king, and what I have is now yours too, all of it. And in turn, the king says, that's right. Through my son, you are all my sons too. You are welcome to your new home. Now, the crazy claim of the Bible is that this isn't merely a formality or merely a metaphor. This is literal. This is how God now sees you through Christ. So this isn't the kind of adoption where kids are brought into a home, treated somewhat kindly, but will never truly be the children of the adoptive parents and everyone knows it. No, when Jesus teaches his disciples to address God as our Father, he means that we too are really and truly a part of God's family as he is. It's the best kind of adoption there is. And you know what? When you see it in human families, when that is true, it is even more so with God's family. It's why adoption language is all over Paul's writing and why he spends a considerable amount of time on the reality that we are in union with Christ through the Spirit which binds us to God the Father through Him, that we truly are in union with the One who made us. Now, as an aside, while this is clearly an intimate relationship, and prayer itself is very intimate, I think, and maybe we'll get into this in the weeks to come, this is why prayer can be so hard for so many people, because it is intimate. You are exposed. It's vulnerable. But it's not sentimental. It's not sentimental. Since the middle of the 1800s, it became popular among American Christians to think of the word that Luke uses here in the Greek, Abba, as, as daddy, instead of his father. And this is mirrored in changes in the larger American culture that were happening at that time, too. So even now, in the typical American home, father is too formal. It's daddy. Daddy is what children say at home. There, of course, is some truth to that, of course, but it misses the far bigger point. What Jesus is after is not primarily emotional, it's relational. Jesus has given us the same access and familiar relationship to God that he has. What he has, he has given to you. So we too have God as our father, and this father is the best father there is. But consider another aspect of why Jesus would teach his disciples to pray, Our Father. Though we are 
clearly, in individuals. To belong to this God is not an individualistic thing. Our Father assumes that we are personally in union with God through His Son and the Spirit, which means that we belong to His one people, two, who hold that phrase, our, plural, possession, together. We hold it together. So it is not as though God makes a, think about this, a new separate family with each person who becomes his child and in turn has a billion different families. That makes zero sense. And yet this is how Christians in America often think of their relationship to God as if it's just me and Jesus, y'all. No, it does not work like that. No, when we are adopted into his family, we are welcomed into his one people, which implies that we are to pray together as siblings. You know, all of us together have been adopted as sons. And what that means, is, as Paul argues when he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, is not that gender distinctions don't matter and that women become men in this view or that it's being paternalistic or something like that, but rather that male and female together are given equal inheritance in the Son of God, which was nonsense in the ancient world. Nonsense. That does not, does not happen. Daughters do not receive. In God's kingdom, male and female receive the same inheritance in the Son. So even as the world continually makes distinctions and judgments on the worth of individuals based on just sin, in God's kingdom, we are all equals. Through Jesus, we can all name God as our Father, and in turn, like with any family gathering, we are all welcome at His table. So to be given the privilege of naming God as Father speaks not merely to the inherent dignity and worth of every person who belongs to Jesus, but speaks to the privileges and rights we have all been given by Jesus himself. Well, with the next phrase, the ESV translators, that is your your pew Bible, uh, chose to go with the familiar King James Version rendering of hallowed be your name. Or no one speaks like that except when they do the Lord's Prayer. So to put that in modern English, it's holy is your name, or we should make your name holy. Now, this is a major theme of the Bible, but in a nutshell, Jesus is teaching us in addressing God as our Father to remember that He is not some pagan deity like Baal. He is the one who made the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them, and He's both good something he will come back to a lot towards the end of the passage, and he's holy. That means there's no sin in him. There's no evil in him. There is no falseness to him. So as Jesus will teach with his two examples at the Lord's Prayer, unlike how the the Pharisee called God's goodness into question, God actually gives good gifts to his children because he is good and he loves them. So Jesus teaches us to see the God of Genesis 1 as truly our Father, even as He is holy and good, who has our best interests at heart. In turn, we are to pray, Your kingdom come. And as Matthew's account adds, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this, this short phrase keeps the proper relationship to God in perspective. God is God. We are not God. Even as he claims us as his sons, we are his creatures, and his, his will, his kingdom, his ordering of the world is true in the best 
possible thing for us. And remember from last week, the temptation, in a certain sense, all of us face this to some extent. The temptation is to quickly move off of receiving God's hospitality to trying to build God's kingdom on our own, which always results in building the kingdom as we see fit, which is a false kingdom. We do not build God's kingdom. We are his children who have the privilege of being used by him for the furthering of his kingdom. But he builds his kingdom according to his will. So even as in the next section we are invited to bring our needs and desires to him, still those things are ordered to his will, his will for our good. To pray on earth as it is in heaven just furthers that idea. As we see with Genesis 1, heaven is the pattern for the earth. So just as the heavenly throne room is the pattern for the tabernacle and the temple, so it is that we should desire for God's heavenly rule to pattern the earth that he made, in particular among his people. And of course, the claim of the Gospels is that Jesus is taking back the world for himself, bringing his rule to bear everywhere he goes. Well, verse 3 changes the tone a bit from addressing God, how we should speak to him and about him, to asking, give us each day our daily bread. Like Mary seated at Jesus' feet, we are invited to seek God's hospitality and to ask him to provide for us. Now, believe it or not, as I was going through my studies this week, biblical commentators have a lot to say, maybe the most to say about this short phrase, and many think uh, Jesus' meaning both speaks to our, our daily obvious needs, but also to our ultimate needs, both of which are met by God alone. So, for example, Martin Luther argues that, that the term bread essentially encompasses all our daily needs, all of them. Everything we need to live in this life, God must provide for it. And this is obvious enough. We are completely dependent creatures and will very quickly die without food, water, air, clothing, shelter, and even fellowship. You cannot live in isolation for very long. And of course, this very thing is what people living in, how should we put it, modern, digital, capitalist economies, we are often oblivious to all of this. Though there were points during the pandemic in 2020 when supplies were, were sometimes difficult to get that we were reminded of just how fragile this life really is. After all, we live in times when, when kids are sometimes shocked to find out that that frozen chicken nuggets that came in a bag from a grocery store was once a living creature that had to die in order to feed them. As an aside, isn't it telling that in order for us to live, some other living organism has to die, whether a plant or an animal? It's why one of the easiest and most important confessions of faith Christians make is before every meal they eat. If prayer is a critical part of worship and devotion, to take even just a few moments to give thanks to God for what he has faithfully provided for us is bound up with our understanding of what our Father means. Our God, as we pray during the Lord's Supper, is the one who has given us the bounty of the field, the fat of the lamb, and the fruit of the vine. And to give a counterexample of how this works is telling that the broader culture, though they may still celebrate holidays like Thanksgiving, even going so far as to say, we give thanks 
Well, they, they don't name who they are thanking. And whatever prayer they offer is most often a prayer to themselves. As in, look at what we did. I want to thank myself for this. And it's, it's really a prayer fit for tyrants. To give thanks is to confess that someone has done something for you that you did not do for yourself. And Jesus teaches that with simple things, like the daily action of eating that we, we just take for granted, that were God to remove his hand from this world, it would immediately end. But so often with Jesus, like in his, his feeding of the 5,000, while literal food that was literally eaten was at the forefront of that miracle, the bread pointed beyond itself. So for example, in his temptation in the wilderness, while having gone 40 days without eating, Jesus, in response to the testing of Satan, says, man does not live by bread alone, but by the very word of God. Like the Pharisee from two weeks ago, Satan tested Jesus by calling into question God's goodness. Here you are. You're starving to death, O son of God. Is your father really good? But as Jesus knows, God provides more than just bread. That's why in John 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus says that he is the bread of heaven, better than the heavenly bread of manna fed to Israel in the wilderness. And he alone gives life that cannot end to the world. It's like how with the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, Jesus asks for a drink from her at that well, and then in turn offers her living water where she will never thirst again. So there he is, Just get the imagery, there he is next to a literal well with literal water that he just drank. And even as that well was dug by Jacob and had provided life for over a thousand years, Jesus offers her water that will sustain her forever. After all, she will eventually die despite how good that well water is. So like how we eat actual bread in the Lord's Supper, even so, it is a sign and seal of the bread of life that we have in Jesus. And so the Heidelberg Catechism rightly begins, this is Lord's Day 1, with the question, what is our only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And what I love about that short answer is that it captures our utter dependence. I am not my own. That is anathema to modern times. Everyone says, I am my own. No, we are utterly dependent. I am not my own. I belong body and soul, every last bit of me, every last atom, both in life and in death, so both in this temporal life that is passing away and the future life that is forever to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the bread of life that sustains me in this life and the life to come. This is exactly why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what they understood in Daniel 3. Clearly, Daniel 3 is on my mind as I've been really studying it in the last two weeks. But this is in their mind when they refused to bow. Unlike all the rest of Babylon's ruling class, they refused to bow to an image erected by Nebuchadnezzar. They knew that their life in that moment depended on God, and they said as much. But unlike the ruling class that bowed because of the threat of death immediately before them and could not see beyond that threat, those Jewish young men knew that their future life beyond the grave depended on God too. 
And I love what they say to the most, he would have been the most powerful man on the planet at that time. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. That is, whether they will bow down to the image he had put up or face the fire. If we have to face the fire, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, think about that. They know God can do it, but he may choose not to. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Our only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what's in view. They know God may rescue them from that really hard situation, but if he does not, he rescues them from death itself, and they knew it. So to pray, our Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us this day our daily bread, is to humble yourself, believing that our God is good and has made us his children through his son Jesus, that his kingdom is the true kingdom and that we are dependent on him for everything in this life and the life to come. And because he is good, those young men knew he was good. Because he is good, he will provide it because he freely gives his hospitality to whoever wants it. And fundamental to all of this is the forgiveness of sins which we will take up next week. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you are good, and your steadfast love endures forever. And though we may face ordinary, mundane days, or maybe we are walking through the valley of the shadow of death that will actually lead to our death, in this life and in death, in this life and the life to come, you have us. You have given us the bread of Jesus, and he is all we need. We thank you for this. We pray all of this through his spirit. Amen.